0: morning, church. Wonderful to sing with you today as we remember what Christ has done for us. As uh, Phil prayed, you heard that we have a special guest today. Dr. John Mead is here. He is a, a professor of Old Testament at Phoenix Seminary and is a good friend, member of Trinity Bible Church, a church we interact with often and have close relationships with through the Gospel Coalition. So, John, thanks for giving your time today, and we're encouraged that you'd come be with us. Uh, Church, why don't you welcome him? (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much. Well, I'm sure you've heard this one before, but uh, it's partly my task this morning uh, as the guest preacher, right, to make you long to have Chuck back, right, standing right here. Yeah, so, um, so we'll, we'll see if I can do my best on that uh, this morning. But uh, in all seriousness, it is my uh, privilege to open the Word of God to you from 1 Samuel 5, uh, verse 1, uh, to chapter 7, verse 1. But before we, we look directly at the passage... Let's review where we are in the story of Samuel. By the end of chapter 4, Eli and his two sons are dead, right? It's a pretty grim day in Israel. They're dead. And uh, the entire affair was so devastating that Phineas' wife named her newborn son Ichabod. Now, I don't ever recommend you naming your child Ichabod, okay? Because it means, where is the glory? That is, it's not here. So it's departed, right? The glory of the Lord has departed. Ichabod. So um, the ark then, uh, the ark of the covenant, the ark of God, the ark of the Lord has gone into exile according to the end of chapter four. Now there's one slight confession I need to make and it surprised even me in the first service and that is I call the name the Lord, I call him Yahweh, because that's the Hebrew name for his word. So everywhere in your Bible that you see Lord in all caps, right? L-O-R-D. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah? Okay. Uh, the, the the Hebrew word underneath that is Yahweh. And this is the Old Testament professor in me. You're going to have to forgive me on this. I It's like second nature for me to do this. Um, Phil and uh, Cheek and the, all these people in here—they know me. That 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 his name is Yahweh, and so I just—it I, comes out, and so I apologize. I'm okay with the translation, the Lord. Just for the record, just so you know, uh, you can also use that, and he will respond to that too. Okay, <laughs> so so it's it's more of matter and problem with me. Okay, not not you or the. English translations. So my goal this morning is to show you from this passage that Yahweh is a warrior, and that he is the sovereign king who brings his enemies to their knees in order to save his people. a, A subsidiary thing that I want you to see from this passage is that Yahweh is glorious. Isaiah 66 says, that the heavens are his throne and the earth is his footstool. And as such, he he engages in warfare, not just with people uh, like the Egyptians, right? We're going to allude to these stories here in a minute, but he actually engages in warfare with the spiritual powers and authorities in the heavens. And that's good news for us. Because these forces want to take us out. And he fights for his people. In a time when the people of Israel had forsaken Yahweh, and even the holy priesthood had become corrupt, Yahweh was on the move. He was continuing to watch over his people and to lead them towards a king after his own heart. The book of Judges continually asked, or or continually lamented, Each one did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel. Remember that? Each one did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel. Well, the book of Samuel is first and foremost going to give us a king at the end. So let's look at God's mighty acts here in chapters 5 and 6 and how we should respond to his sovereign rule. Now, there are two points of background before I get into chapter five that we need to understand before we look at the meaning of God's word this morning and apply it to our lives. The biblical authors right, wrote in a time, place, and culture very different from our own. And to understand their message, you see, we need to press into their world. So first, how did they view the Ark of the Covenant? And second, how did they view other gods like Dagon? So the first question, the Ark of the Covenant was the place where God revealed himself and was also a symbol of his kingship. Exodus 25, 21 and 22 says this, and you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the Ark and in the Ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I, the Lord, will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, right, overlaid in gold, that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you, Moses, about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. That's the place where God meets with the intermediary to convey God's message to the people. Now, of course, the mercy seat, right, is the place where purification of sins and the appeasement of God's wrath took place in Israel. More on that in a a little bit. The second point I want us to see about what this ark is, it's a box. It's a box. It's really not anything more in structure than a box with a a pretty fancy cover on it, the the mercy seat itself. But in 2 Samuel 6, 2, we learn this. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baale Judah to bring up from there the ark of God which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned above the cherubim. Thus Israel, you see, also viewed the ark of God as the throne of God. In fact, the the ark would have looked like a box and would have functioned as the footstool, you see, for God's feet. So the Philistines captured the throne of Yahweh at the end of chapter four, and from all vantage points, the Philistines' gods conquered Yahweh. And this brings us to our second point of background. What about the other gods like Dagon? And I'm restricting myself to one important point this morning. The ancients viewed their gods as regional deities, not gods over the whole world. Thus, for example, the Egyptian gods were exactly that, the gods of Egypt, right? They only ruled and meddled (laughs) in Egyptian affairs. That's all they did. Just like the gods of Babylon. They were simply gods who ruled over Babylon and meddled in the affairs of Babylonians. Indeed, the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 32.8 says that Yahweh, or the Most High, is the one who ordered it so. That verse reads like this. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. Now, the sons of God are spiritual beings that govern over the nations. We run into them in other places like Daniel chapter 10 with references to the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece who are strong enough, you see, to contend with the angel Michael. So, so, almost, so no commentator argues that the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece is a human being. Rather, they're, they're spiritual beings, and they, they are over the territories of Greece and Persia, respectively, and they are constantly engaging, it looks like they're in battle with Yahweh and his, uh, his forces, his hosts like Michael. The ancients viewed spiritual beings as over specific regions or territories. But in Israel, here's the big difference, right? Yahweh was viewed as the only God who created the world, and therefore he was not constrained by regions. Deuteronomy 32, eight says, right, that it's the Lord God who placed regions under other lower spiritual beings. Because of this truth, you see, 1 Samuel 5 is so shocking. For Yahweh is not a regional God. He can walk into Dagon's territory, as it were, and act freely. He's he's not constrained at all by, by leaving Israel and walking into Philistine territory. Why? Because he created it all, and he owns it all, you see. All these other false gods, idols, lower spiritual beings must do his will. Psalm 103. Let's look now at 1 Samuel 5, where Yahweh as warrior and king conquers Dagon of the Philistines. Now in these verses, we behold Yahweh the warrior and his swift and decisive battle against Dagon. The last time Yahweh was in exile with his people was in Exodus 1-15. And it's in Exodus fifteen three that we read that he is a man of war. He is a warrior. Yahweh is. And Mo- Moses is singing this song to him about the great deliverance out of Egypt because Yahweh vanquished Pharaoh and the Egyptian gods. He now is in exile once more and is about to do the same. The Philistines, right, in chapter four, they're walking back with it. They must have viewed the ark as some kind of a trophy of Dagon's victory over Yahweh. Therefore, they, they, they bring it right into the shrine of Dagon and set it down beside him. And again, Dagon was probably thought to be the Philistine god over grain, and crops, right? If you're a polytheist, you have a god for everything. Okay, there's a god who's associated with the sun, who makes it rise. There's a god of the mountains. There's a god of the crops. There's a god who makes it rain. Okay, and uh, so so Dagon is supposedly the god responsible for causing grain and crops to grow. The next morning, the Philistines walk in. And they find Dagon on his face before Yahweh in his own shrine, right? This is most unexpected. In this position, Dagon was either considered to be defeated or on his way down to the underworld uh, or worshiping Yahweh, you see. So unsure, right? The priests set him back up in his place beside Yahweh, but only to find him the next morning on the ground again. And this time, without his head, and without his hands or his limbs altogether. All that was there was the trunk, right? The the body without the limbs on the doorstep or the threshold. That's all that's there. (laughs) Thus, Yahweh has utterly defeated Dagon and left him completely powerless right the hands in that culture right often symbols of power so what kind of a god doesn't have hands you see this god is completely powerless to act yahweh leaves him as such so humiliating was the defeat that the priests of that shrine to dagon and ashdod did not walk upon its threshold to the time the story was recorded now we should pause here for just a moment in the hustle and bustle of our modern lives and in the age of the internet and airplanes and smartphones, we tend to forget that the heavens are filled with spiritual beings, many of them who would want to see our destruction and who have waged war against God and his people for thousands of years. See the book of Job. But the New Testament also refers to them as the powers and authorities In Colossians 2.15, for example, in 1 Samuel 5, you see, we, we have just witnessed another great victory of Yahweh against these forces of chaos and evil. In establishing his kingdom, Yahweh won a decisive victory against these rulers and authorities when he vanquished Dagon of the Philistines. And I'll try and make clear in a moment that this victory, and all of them in the Old Testament, anticipate Jesus' final victory over the rulers and authorities in the heavens, in the cross and resurrection. These mighty acts of God should strike fear in the hearts of God's enemies, but comfort in the minds of God's people. Yahweh is a mighty warrior, and he fights for those who take refuge in him. He is a strong Tower and the righteous run to him for safety. The rest of chapter 5, then, verses 6 to 12, tells of Yahweh's victory tour. So, so it, it's a stunning victory, right? Uh, Yahweh walks into Dagon's own shrine, takes him out, cuts his hands off, it makes him, renders him completely powerless. And in a sudden twist of the plot now, Yahweh's hand, right, verse six, is now heavy upon the people of Ashdod. In verse six, the original word is related to the word for glory at the end of chapter four, right? So Ichabod, right, the glory had departed. But, but you see, while the Israelites were thinking that, that the glory had gone into exile, Yahweh's powerful hand was heavy or glory against the Philistines. The weight of Yahweh's glory was not in exile as much as it was in battle against his enemies. Yahweh strikes them with a plague of swellings or tumors, right? And we'll learn a little bit later in chapter 6, verse 4, that he sent mice as well. And these mice, we're told, are ravaging the earth. That is, they're eating up all the grain in the fields. And again, Dagon was thought to be the god of grain and crops, right? So that Yahweh's plague would include mice was a fitting feature of his attack. By the way, this happens all the time. I can't resist this one other example from the book of Exodus itself. Do you remember that plague where it's dark for three days? In fact, it's like deep darkness, so that every Egyptian had to stay where they were because they couldn't see their hand in front of their face. Do you remember that one? Well, remember, the big god in Egypt is the sun god, Ra. So it's like, where was Ra for three days? Right? Yahweh vanquished him for three days. Completely takes him out. And then it's like, okay, there can be sun again now. And the Egyptians are astonished because Yahweh went right after the chief god of their pantheon, you see, and rendered the sky dark for three days. Just like this, right? Dagon is the god of grain. He's he's responsible for causing it to grow and protecting it from from creatures like mice and moles and so on. And these creatures apparently have ravaged the grain fields. (laughs) So, um, <clears throat> so the Philistines, right, they, they move the Ark of Yahweh around in these verses from Ashdod to Gath to Ekron. In each place, the hand of Yahweh is heavy upon them, and the plague and the ensuing frenzy becomes far too much for the people to handle. In the end, the Philistines are crying out to heaven for relief. Now, the Bible presents Yahweh as a conquering warrior here. He sent a plague on the Philistines, just as he sent several plagues on the Egyptians in the Exodus. In each case, these plagues are aimed at his enemies for the sole reason of bringing him glory. Yahweh is free and majestic in judging his enemies on the one hand and saving his people on the other. Yahweh's battles establish his kingdom and just rule. Again, Israel has totally given up on this mission, right? Israel's supposed to extend the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. They gave up on it. After they tried to secure the borders, they stopped. And then the priesthood becomes corrupt. Right? Eli dies, right? He falls back in this chair, right? But you're told that the chair sort of breaks under the girth of this man. So you wonder how fat he was getting off the offerings. But Yahweh is holy. Yahweh is committed, devoted to establishing his kingdom and to establishing it in covenant with Israel. Yahweh's battles establish his kingdom. And if this is true of the battles in the Old Testament, how much truer is it in the case of God's decisive victory for us in Christ Jesus in the New Testament. And I'll come back to that question at the end. The question you now should ponder is whom do you serve? Do you serve false gods anticipating their pleasures and riches now? Or do you serve Yahweh the warrior and king at whose right hand are pleasures and joys forevermore? That's the question. There's a lot of gods out there and they all promise pleasures. Pleasures and riches, now. But we're told in Psalm 16 that there are pleasures and joys at God's right hand forevermore. Who are you going to serve? Who are you going to trust? I think this story makes no doubt who we should trust, right? Because as the the victory tour continues, you realize that Yahweh is the winner, and Yahweh is the servant king. So moving now to looking at Yahweh as king in exile in chapter 6, we see that there is a stunning irony. Maybe even we might call it dark humor in chapter 6. The Philistines have gone through more panic, dismay, and plague than they bargained for, and they're now ready to be rid of the ark. So the Philistines summon their priests and their diviners for advice on how to get rid of it. Everywhere they take it, right? It's just constantly defeating them everywhere they take it. So the Bible's humor and irony is palpable now as the Philistines come to honor God, although in very unholy ways, as we'll see, while the Israelites, who should know God, can't even occupy the same space that he does. The Philistine priests and diviners advise returning the ark with a guilt offering. They know that they've offended Yahweh, which would have astonished the Israelites. On the other hand, the Philistine priests' counsel for how to return the ark breaks the Mosaic law, which the Israelites would have found quite humorous. But in the end, the Philistines intend to honor God. First, the Philistines build a cart pulled by milk cows to move the ark. And at this point, right, if you know the Mosaic law, you know that the only way to move this ark is by Levitical priests, right, carrying it on poles. The second thing the Philistines do, which is crazy when you compare it to what the rest of the Mosaic law says, is that they prepare a guilt offering of five golden tumors and five golden mice to relieve them from the heaviness of Yahweh's hand but we know from the rest of the Mosaic law that the tumors and the mice are considered unclean, and no Israelite ever would seriously consider offering these to Yahweh, (laughs) especially if they wanted to be relieved, right, of some pressure. You would never do that. The whole situation is laughable from this perspective. But the joke is not finally on the Philistines here. The joke is truly on the people of Israel. Because in verses 5 and 6, the intention of the Philistines should not be missed. In the last part of verses 5 and 6, the Philistines come to know something of Yahweh through this ordeal. While the Israelites remain ever in darkness, the Philistine priests encourage the Lord's to give honor or glory to the God of Israel. And then perhaps, right, he'll lighten his hand from on the Philistines, their land, and their gods. Now, furthermore, in verse 6, these priests, right, they're they're giving the lords of the Philistines a history lesson here, right? They recall how the Egyptians expelled the Israelites from their land. The Philistine priests exhort the lords not to harden their hearts as the Egyptians and the Pharaoh did. But you see what's happening here, right? The Philistines have had this seven-month encounter with Yahweh and the ark, and they've learned their lesson. Here's what they've learned. Yahweh is king and that they've offended him, right? They then seek to appease him with a guilt offering, and then they seek to soften their hearts to let the ark go, so that God will lighten his hand from on them, as he did with the Egyptians. Thus the Philistines, right, who should never come to this kind of knowledge, they actually come to know the Yahweh of the Exodus, to the shame of the Israelites. You see who gets kind of the last laugh there, right? Yeah. Meanwhile, the ark goes directly to Beth Shemesh against all odds of the milk cows leaving their calves, once more showing that Yahweh is a completely sovereign king while in exile. I was intrigued uh, by the end of verse 9 of chapter 6. The Philistines, uh, they're still waiting just till the last second, right? Watching the cart go... And, uh, and they're wondering, um, <laughs> you know, if, if it goes back to, to, their, to Israel's territory, then we'll know, uh, well, yeah, if it doesn't, then we'll know that it's not his hand that struck us. This happened to us by coincidence. In other words, they're still holding out a hope that this wasn't Yahweh's personal judgment on them. Does that make sense? Like maybe this was just coincidence in verse 9. Yeah, well, the, they get their answer though when the cart goes right back to the, to its people, to Beth Shemesh again against all odds. Those those milk cows should never have left their calves, right? That just naturally that never happens, okay. And yet it guides the ark. They guide the ark directly back to Israel. Okay, that brings us to the last section now, that the Israelites at Beth Shemesh do not know Yahweh in 6.13 to the end. Now, unfortunately, the last part of the passage does not have a happy ending. Under Yahweh's rule and guidance, the ark reaches Beth Shemesh, where it's greeted with rejoicing, whole burnt offerings, and sacrifices to Yahweh under Levite supervision. The golden tumors and golden mice were all received. All seems to end well here, until verse 19. And it's at this point that some of the men look into the Ark of Yahweh, an act which was forbidden according to the law, Numbers 4, 19 and 20. Don't ever look upon these holy things, and they did. And Yahweh strikes 70 of them or 50,000 of them. The big difference there, of course, Um, but there's a difference in the manuscripts, and the ESV is good at giving a note there. The problem the, or the people mourn, right? Because Yahweh struck the people with a great blow. Once again, we see the freedom of Yahweh on display here as he judges whom he will and spares whom he will. He is king. He is sovereign over all. But this event leads to a condemning confession on the part of the men of Beth Shemesh. They ask in verse 19, who can stand before Yahweh, this holy God? And to whom will he go away from us? You see, the first question implies a negative answer, right? No one. In these people's view, no one can stand before a holy God. And the second implies the same. There's nowhere he can go. Is nowhere else, to, to, to no one else, can he go? <coughs> the first question implies, well, yes. So, <clears throat> so the, the men of Beth Shemesh appear to use the term holy, right, in a negative way. Almost as like a taboo kind of term. They do not know the holiness of Yahweh, like Hannah in 1 Samuel 2.2 2 knew him. If you're in your Bibles, turn back a couple pages to 1 Samuel 2.2. This is the only other time the word holy has been used in 1 Samuel up to this point. Hannah sings, (coughs) There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more, So very proudly, let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. You see, to Hannah... Yahweh's holiness is not a reason for fear or or, or a cause of of taboo, but but rather Yahweh's holiness means he is devoted to help the humble and lowly and to oppose the proud and mighty. To the one who knows Yahweh, his holiness is not a cause for fear, but a source of strength and encouragement. Just like Hannah says, there's no one holy like the Lord. And yet, look how she goes on to describe him. He is a friend of the lowly. Does that make sense? And yes, he is devoted to becoming the greatest enemy to the mighty. But this is his holiness. He's devoted to himself and his way. Now, now the men of Beth Shemesh, right in our verse use the word holy of Yahweh in a negative way because they do not know how to relate to him as the devoted warrior and king that he is. There's an open problem in Israel now because Yahweh has returned to a people who are not devoted or consecrated to him and his way. And so they stand up and they look at him and they go, who is this holy God? We don't know and I wish we could send him someplace else. But there's nowhere else to send him. So there's going to be a problem in Israel. They're devoted to their own corrupt ways, but Yahweh has returned to stay. Despite their wishes for him to move on, there's no other place for him to go. And in chapter seven, Samuel's reforms begin with calling them to return to Yahweh with all their heart. For the people do not love Yahweh with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. So there is hope with this warrior, with this servant king, but it always requires a turning from your sin and your corrupt ways and to turn to him and to love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What does the Lord do with that person? He welcomes him in every time. Every time. So, um, so kind of stepping back now, sort of looking at the Bible as a whole, our text this morning, right, shows that Yahweh is a warrior and a king over all the peoples of the earth. And furthermore, all peoples will have to bow to him in full loyalty or face his open warfare, right? That seems to be the conclusion. The ark was Yahweh's throne and symbol of royal authority. And as he toured Philistine, the Philistine territory, all became confronted by his rule and were subjugated to it. Now as the story of the Bible unfolds, really as the story of First Samuel unfolds, Yahweh's king or Messiah in Jerusalem becomes the one whom the peoples are to submit. For example, in Psalm 2, verses 9 to 12, we have this. You, speaking to the Messiah, you shall break the nations with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Right, so so no one's bowing down to the ark here, right, in this passage. They're not bowing down to the, the temple. They are encouraged here, the kings of the earth are encouraged to kiss the ring, so to speak, of the king, of the Messiah. And in the New Testament, right, Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 2 clearly and he's the fulfillment of all similar Old Testament expectations. If you want to turn to God now you bend the knee to his son Christ Jesus, right? Yeah. There's no there's no ark, there's no temple to go and do that to, but you you actually bend your knee, bow your head, to the king, Jesus, who is reigning at the right hand of God in heaven, you see. The second biblical theological conclusion is this. <clears throat> and that is the other aspect of the ark, and that is where atonement was accomplished. The men of Beth Shemesh asked, who can stand before Yahweh, this holy God? The immediate answer is the one who fears Yahweh and trusts in his promise can stand before him and be forgiven by him. Psalm 130. O oh Lord, if you keep a record of wrongs, who could stand? Right? Who could stand? Same question, except this is not a skeptic like the men of Beth Shemesh. In Psalm 130, he says, but there's forgiveness with you, O God, for the one who fears you. So the Old Testament clearly has a way to stand before God. You must fear him and trust in his promises. And Romans 3.25 says clearly that God put forth Christ Jesus as a propitiation. That is, as the mercy seat itself where God's wrath was appeased and his just punishment was satisfied, just like we sang here this morning. All those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ are covered by his blood, and therefore the wrath of God is no longer aimed at them, but aimed at Christ. And that's the gospel this morning, which was anticipated in the Old Testament in passages even like 1 Samuel 5 and 6. But clearly, this was fulfilled in the new. Now, in the closing minutes that we have left, let me just give a few applications. <clears throat> Ultimately, there's no do this or do that from 1 Samuel 5 and 6. Yeah, so, so these, this is my attempt at wisdom here. Okay, um, When I read 1 Samuel 5 and 6, I think it's first intention is to shock readers like you and me by showing just how powerful, sovereign, and free Yahweh is. Okay? That's the first thing. May we be completely awestruck and enamored by his glory, by his heavy hand upon his enemies. I'm also struck that Yahweh is not doing this in a vacuum. He is Israel's warrior. And as a warrior, he fights to defend and rescue his people from danger and harm. Hannah knew Yahweh like this. Unfortunately, not all Israel knew him as this warrior. The question is, do you know him as this warrior? I'm almost reminded, well, I am reminded at uh, the discussion in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when uh, the Pevensey children asked the beavers, is Aslan safe? And of course they say, no, but he's good. Right, no, but he's good. Yahweh is a warrior. He's a man of war, Exodus 15, verse 3. You can't put him in a box, so to speak. He's free, as we've seen. But one thing we do know from across the entire Bible is that those who humble themselves and fear him and trust him and run to him as their refuge, he will never turn away. That we know. He is good. He's not safe, but he's good. In light of these truths, if you've not confessed, Christ, as Lord and King, I want to encourage you to do so this morning. The Bible speaks so vividly of God's kingship and its comprehensive scope. He desires all to subject their lives to him and his righteous rule. Please talk to someone around you or one of the pastors here about how to close with Christ before you leave today. Third, if you're a Christian today, perhaps you need to reflect more on how your life doesn't reflect Yahweh's kingship or complete subjection to his authority. Perhaps your loyalty as my own from time to time has cooled over the months and years, and you need to ask the Lord to forgive you and and to give you a fervent spirit of loyalty towards him. Maybe your heart and mind are divided between love of God and the love of material possessions or money, Maybe there's some relationship that you worship instead of God. Maybe sex or pornography divide your allegiance. Perhaps you're not submitting to God in your personal relationships at work, school, home, and the church. What's the answer? Not go home and try harder. I mean that. What's the answer? you have to turn to Christ today with all of your heart and know that the promise is there that he'll forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Fill your mind with the grandeur of Yahweh, with the sacrificial life and death of Christ Jesus, Yahweh with skin on. And may that motivate you to be loyal to him today and this week. Please pray with me. Our Father and our God, we thank you so much for this message. Forgive us, Father. We oftentimes have a very small view of you. But your scriptures teach so clearly that your throne is in the heavens and that earth is your footstool. We need an increasingly greater vision of you so that our holiness and devotedness to you will increase. Please take the blinders off our eyes that we can be reminded of you and your hosts. It's in Jesus Christ's name that I pray. Amen.